We the people. We the people. We the people of the United States. We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. To ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. In the summer of 1787, 55 men would gather in Philadelphia. They were tasked with fixing the government of the United States of America. Over the course of four months, they would debate, argue, refine and prepare the first document of its kind in the history of mankind, an attempt to prove that men can rule themselves by law. Over the next three years, the 13 United States would debate the ratification. This is the story of those men and of those times. It is a look at the ideas, the concepts, the debates, and the history of the Constitution of the United States. This is Constitution Thursday. Virginia will elect 168 delegates to its convention to be held in Richmond in June. Three of those delegates, James Madison, George Mason and Patrick Henry, are well known to us. It is their interplay that will determine Virginia's course of action. Will she reject her own ideals of liberty? Or will she see the wisdom and advantage of going along with the Constitution? Many of her citizens and leaders believe that Virginia can go it alone and do so successfully. Other states fear Virginia as a breakaway country, sitting between them in the middle of the continent. These men, who we regard with great admiration and awe, now face the single most divisive moment in American political history. How they solve the issue will decide the future of the United States of America. A few weeks ago, by chance, I was having a conversation with a very good friend of mine about the politics of today and he was expressing to me his concern and frustration over the situation in the 2016 elections and and really he wasn't saying anything anybody else hasn't said but he was you know concerned what do I do and but over the course of the conversation though one of the things that he said was it's almost a miracle Dave at how many times the right person was in the right place in our history. You know, Washington, Jefferson, Madison, Lincoln, Roosevelt, Kennedy, and on and on went the list. And it was kind of an intriguing comment, and it was one that has stuck with me, but what stuck with me more was the immediate response that I had, and I'm not trying to be, you know, braggadocio or anything here, it's not what I'm about, but what I said to him immediately was, you know, they would have called it, particularly those uh, of the framing and founding generations, they would have called it divine providence, not a miracle. But moreover, we credit it as well because of our, I, I want to call it historical myopia. We see what we want to see. We look at men like Washington, Madison, Jefferson, Patrick Henry, um, some of the great Virginians of the era. And we see their greatness. And we, because we're so focused on their greatness, I mean, we have paintings in, in, in the Capitol 
nation's capital, Washington, D.C., of, of Washington essentially becoming a god. Uh, we have statutes and tributes and all sorts of things. We don't think about the man side of these people. We don't think about the fact that these guys were in the greatest political crisis this nation had ever seen. Uh, you can you can talk about the 2016 election all you want, and surely we're going to on the regular show. But reality is, we were far more divided in 1788 than we are today. There was a difference. And that difference was evident in places like Boston, where you had patriots, Sam Adams, who understood that they had a minority opinion. And it was what was about what best was for what was best for the nation. When we come to Virginia in the ratifying process of the Constitution, we have here some very unique opportunities and some very unique things. By the time Virginia gets around to ratifying the Constitution, not as they start, but as they get around to it, they will be the 10th state to ratify. So in the, in the process of getting to that, however, and, and they won't ratify, we won't ratify until June, late June of 1788, but it is a, a long process. The convention will start in March and it will drag through the spring and into the summer, the early summer of 1788, and it will find the greatest orators of the day, men who have gone down in our history as the, the very in Virginia. And in Virginia, you will find debates and arguments that rival all the others. The Federalist Papers have been written in New York and they've been published in, in volumes. But those volumes are so rare that they're difficult to get. In fact, many of the Virginia delegates, some of the Federalist Virginia delegates, attempt to purchase 50, 60 copies of the Federalist Papers and distribute them. But they find them very difficult to get. The truth is that most of the Virginia delegates have no clue what's in the Federalist Papers. And when they gather in early June, although they've been working on this since, since March, they've had the elections uh, for who's going to go back in March. Uh, by the time they actually officially gather in Richmond in early June, very few of them have read the Federalist Papers. They're relying almost solely upon the positions as expressed by two of the leading anti-federalists in the entire country. George Mason, who we've talked about at great length, who went to the convention, stayed for the entire thing, probably saved the convention by, by, by promising to stay through the whole thing. And a guy by the name of Patrick Henry, who should be well familiar to you. And if you're not, if he's not, you're, uh, you're missing out on one of the great Americans of all time. Patrick Henry, of course, is famous for, and this is where I use to say Bueller, <laughs> Bueller. Um, Patrick Henry is famous for his speech, given in opposition to the Stamp Act, give me liberty or give me death. That was very early on in the revolutionary process. By the time we reach the constitutional conventions, Patrick Henry has served as uh, essentially the governor of Virginia. He's been a politician. He's been in and out of office. He's been a very active American. 
and yet he is still very outspoken about individual liberties as well as states' sovereignty. I, I like the term sovereignty better than rights, um, and, and I will editorialize here for just a moment, if you will. The phrase states' rats has come to mean one thing, and that is slavery. Um, state sovereignty is probably better how they would have understood it anyway. They would not have framed, in 1788, they would not have framed the entirety of the issue in terms of slavery. Um, and so they probably saw it more in terms of state sovereignty than we will uh, 80 years later in the terms of state's rats. Patrick Henry is one of the leading defenders of, uh, of state sovereignty. He really believes that the states should have the final say in everything. He uh, appreciates the, the Articles of Confederation because they allow for that to happen. And over the course of his career, he has fought, really fought Jefferson to a standstill over the issue of individual rights and states' rights, state sovereignty, if you will. There is um, a little-known issue in our history. It should be a bigger issue, and, and particularly uh, I, as I was studying this, I, I realized this is one of those topics that I really needed to get into on the regular show. Uh, but Thomas Jefferson, if you ever go to his, his burial place or go look at his, the picture of his tombstone, uh, Thomas Jefferson has upon his tombstone his three, what he considers to be his three biggest accomplishments. On that is the Virginia Declaration of Religious Liberty. He considers this to be his greatest, one of his great, three greatest accomplishments. Here's Thomas Jefferson, a man who wrote the Declaration of Independence, and he puts upon his tombstone, has written upon his epitaph, the Declaration of Virginia's religious liberty law. And you might be saying to yourself, well, why was that such a big deal? When Jefferson was governor of Virginia in the early, in the mid-17, he wasn't the governor, he was one of the, one of the folks there. Uh, in the mid-1780s, Patrick Henry was the governor, sorry, uh, he introduced this law. The idea was they would, in essence, separate church and state in the state of Virginia. Now, you may have heard that phrase before, and you may, like me, agree with it. You may be uncomfortable with it. But the fact of the matter is, is that before there ever was a constitution, before there ever was a Bill of Rights or a Danbury letter or a Jeffersonian presidency, this was an issue in Virginia. And in 1786, it was introduced to the, uh, to the Virginia legislature, which by this point was meeting in Richmond. Richmond had become the capital of Virginia. The traditional capital, capital is Williamsburg, which is a beautiful place. Uh, if you've ever been there, if you haven't been there, put it on your places to go on vacation, Williamsburg, Virginia. Uh, it's a fun place to go. Not only do you have Colonial Williamsburg, but you have Bush Gardens is right there. Uh, Yorktown is right there. The Norfolk area is right there. It's fantastic. End of travel. Um, but they had moved it during the Revolutionary War because Williamsburg was far too exposed to the British. So they moved it to Richmond, which was this little, uh, at the time, very small town, right at the confluence there of the rivers, uh, the head of the rivers. It was as far as you could go navigatably up the river, uh, the James River, and, um, and it was considered safe. And this is where the capital of Virginia has been ever since. By the time they were meeting there uh, in, in 1780s, they introduced, Jefferson had this bill introduced called the Virginia Religious 
Liberty Bill. And the idea here was to make a clean separation between the church of the state of Virginia and the state of Virginia. Virginia was one of the states that had an official church. That's right, in 1786, the Church of Virginia was the Anglican Church, or the Church of England, as it were. And the Church of England, the Anglican Church, the Anglican faith, was uh, compensated by, supported by, the tax revenues and the government of the state of Virginia. Virginia was also, because of the Great Awakening, uh, by the way, there's a fantastic article about uh, the Great Awakening and the American Revolution in the Journal of American Revolutionary War. Uh, just go to allthingsliberty.com uh, or dot not, allthingsliberty, just Google that, you'll find it. Uh, fantastic article uh, this month about the Great Awakening. But one of the effects of the Great Awakening was there was a great deal of non-Anglican religious growth in Virginia, particularly amongst the Baptist faith. This had been going on, quite frankly, for some time, since the 1730s, uh, this had been going on. And there are stories being told that are true stories. There are books about the, the Baptist martyrs, as it were, of, of Virginia during the 1700s. It was a regular occurrence that Baptist ministers, Baptist preachers, were arrested and thrown into prison for not being licensed to preach their faith. This isn't the United States of the 1600s, the colonies of the 1600s. This isn't Nazi Germany. It's not communist Russia. This is America in 1780s. In 1783, one of the pastors is arrested. He's thrown into prison, and the stories are told that uh, he was such an effective preacher that he would stand by the window of his prison cell and preach out the window. And there were huge crowds that would come to listen to him preach because he couldn't pay his fine. Uh, the, the, the price, the penalty for preaching without a license was you had, to, you had to go to jail until you could pay a fine. And when you pay the fine, then they let you out and you start preaching again, they throw you back in. He couldn't, he couldn't raise the money to pay it. He didn't have the money. And he would preach at this jail cell. And the, the Baptists, you know, well, the, the Anglicans, or as they're referred to, people of ill repute, would stand by the window, cell with, window at the cell with knives on the outside. And when he would reach his hands through to either make a point or shake hands, they would stab his hands with their knives. This is, again, this is America in the 1780s, folks. This is Virginia in the 1780s. The Jeffersonian ideal was that this was bad. This is no good. This is, this is problematic. Madison, of course, agreed with this, by the way. And Jefferson worked to come up with this what he called the religious conscious, the liber liberty of conscience idea, to do away with this official church of the state of Virginia, particularly since it was Anglican, the Church of England, um, th that was creating, that's, that's a political non sequitur. I mean, we just rebelled against England and we still have their church here. How can we continue to support this? And Jefferson was fought to a standstill on this bill. He was beaten by Patrick Henry, who opposed this religious conscience bill in the Virginia State Legislature. He fought it as the governor. He, Patrick Henry fought it to a standstill, refused to. He absolutely despised this bill. And of course, the first time it was introduced, it was defeated. 
Now, you might be saying to yourself, okay, Dave, why would Patrick Henry, who's a supporter of individual rights and a supporter of state sovereignty, fight such a bill? Well, the key is in state sovereignty. But the secondary key, by the way, he agreed that the idea of having the Church of England as the official church of, uh, of the state of Virginia was probably a bad idea. And he agreed that it shouldn't be the official state uh, church. It shouldn't. He, he actually agreed with that. What he did not agree with, what Patrick Henry vehemently disagreed with, was Jefferson's ideology that government shouldn't be involved with religion at all that there should be no place for religion in government. This was Jefferson's uh, great wall between the church and state. And despite the interpretations of the Danbury letter and effectiveness and, and those sorts of things, th this was pretty much Jefferson's position, was there's no place for religion in government because once, religion starts, uh, once government starts favoring a religion, you've got a problem. And we see that still today. Once religion is, is accommodated by government in any way, it, it, it snowballs. Well, Patrick Henry thought that that was a bad idea. He, he opposed that vehemently. He thought that in order to have a good state government, you had to have moral, religious, and particularly Protestant people uh, running things. And that if you, couldn't have, if you couldn't have religion in government, then you wouldn't have religious tests and you wouldn't have the ability to do those things, and that's a direct slap at state sovereignty, and it's no good. And so Patrick Henry fought it tooth and nail. By the way, this preacher, this Baptist preacher, eventually, uh, his fine was paid anonymously, and he was released. He went on to continue to lead the fight for Jefferson's bill. He continued to uh, preach in favor of Jefferson's religious liberty bill. He spoke for it quite eloquently, and the Baptists in Virginia, who will tell you to this day that they were the primary beneficiaries of the Virginia conscious, religious conscious uh, bills and the, 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 the Jeffersonian laws, which by the way would be reintroduced later on by Madison, um, they were the primary beneficiaries, and they will tell you that. In fact, if you read the book today, that's one of the things to say. We, we were the, it benefited everybody, but we were the biggest, the Baptist church was the biggest beneficiary of this. It was only years later, almost by accident, that the pastor, whose name was Weatherford, by the way, uh, found out who paid his fine anonymously. It's probably not hard to guess who it was. It was Patrick Henry who paid his fine and set him back out on his course of breaking Virginia law of preaching without a license, even though he opposed Jefferson's bill on, on religious liberty, on the grounds of state sovereignty. To me, it's absolutely interesting and fascinating to see the interface and the interplay between these men, these giants of Virginia. Jefferson, who's not there, by the way, Madison, who will be at the convention in Richmond. Mason, who will be at the convention in, in Richmond. And, and Patrick Henry. It's even more intriguing to see the men who are not there. George Washington does not go. He wants uh, really nothing to do with the convention part of this. He feels like he's done his part. And now it's up to the people. 
there's a belief that Madison versus Mason and Henry is really going to be the focal point of this. Madison is the ultimate Federalist. He's one of the men who has written the Federalist Papers. He's, one, he's the father of the Constitution. He was the secretary. He's the guy that wrote all the, the information at the convention. He's, he certainly um, he didn't get his way at the convention. You can't, stay, you can't say that Madison is a state sovereignty guy. I mean, at one point he called for the dissolution of the states and replacement by the central government. But he has uh, adeptly adapted his position to be that of one of the leading Federalists. So much so that it's recognized that if he's not there, Virginia, which is really split, probably isn't going to vote to ratify. And with people like Mason, who is very well known, particularly in Northern Virginia, he's from Fairfax County, uh, he's a lawyer, that's where George Mason University is now, by the way, um, He's, he was at the convention. He made it clear that he didn't agree with what was being proposed. The problem Mason has is twofold. Number one, he doesn't really have a better idea. He can't really, he can explain to you the things that he's afraid of in the Constitution, but he can't really explain how to make them better. For some reason, it just never even seems to occur to him some of the ideas that come up from other places. Moreover, his problem is that he is elected, Mason's problem is he's elected from Fairfax County, which overwhelmingly is in favor of ratification of the Constitution, and they make it clear to him that they expect him to vote in favor. They're not sending him there to vote his conscience. They're sending him there. You had that opportunity when you were in Philadelphia. Now you're going there to represent us, and we are in favor of this. Patrick Henry, on the other hand, has no such qualms. He has no uh, concerns of the, that nature. He is going to make it very clear that he is against it. Mason is not going to be pro-Constitution. He's not, but he's not going to be the firebrand that Patrick Henry is going to be either. Madison, who is needed to be there, they need him there. He is a linchpin in the Federalist position. By the way, when they elect the electors, the, the representatives there for the, for the Richmond Convention, there are 84 Federalist people and there are 84 anti-Federalist people. It is evenly split. If they don't have Madison, how do they do this? Who speaks most eloquently for the Constitution? He's got to be there. But on the literally days before the elections, in, the, in each county in Virginia, Madison is still in, in Congress. He's still hanging out in Congress. And there's a reason why he's there. Virginia is by far and away the largest state. I mean, you think of, we think of Virginia now as being a relatively moderate state. It really is much larger in 1788. Virginia really consists of Virginia, what is now West Virginia, and expands west into Kentucky, Tennessee. And because it is probably the most populous state. It's number one. It has 800,000 plus people. And it has the most territory. It has been assigned, Virginia has been assigned responsibility for what are known as the Northwest Territories. What will become Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, that area is, is the responsibility of Virginia, even though it's not technically theirs. They have to, they have to administer that. 
And so days before the elections, to decide who's going to go to the Richmond Convention, Madison is still at Congress dealing with the issues that Virginia has to deal with as the largest and most influential state in Congress and handling all the deals and all the problems and all the, the legislation for the Northwest Territories. Virginia is the one state in the entire American experiment that the idle chat that has been flying around other states, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, some other states have talked about it, but not seriously. Virginia is the one state where 84 of their delegates believe that if they reject the Constitution, they can not only become their own country, but they can do it successfully. And they believe this. And it's not a far-fetched belief. I mean, if you think about Virginia in the 1780s, it was by far and away the wealthiest state. It had the most uh, economic activity. It had the most uh, usable, really, uh, seaboard space and portage and controlled access to other places like Philadelphia and New Jersey and those sorts of things. I mean, they, they really had everything that you could possibly need, including the most people. And how likely is it, if they go their own way, that they just announce that, hey, look, Kentucky, Tennessee, and the Northwest Territories, they're ours. We've been responsible. We've been administrating. That, that's all us. And everything in them is ours. Virginia really, truly, and honestly believes that if they decide to go without the Constitution, that they can, in fact, do so successfully. And they have no fears like some of the other states have of, you know, what would happen, you know, economically, would we be strangled, militarily, how would we defend ourselves? Uh, at this point, the it's still not, uh, you know, it, it's still kind of up in the air with religious issues. There's always even the opportunity to return to England if need be. But then there's that other side of the coin, because there always is, Right. And that's those, those, those other 84 delegates. Those other 84 delegates have come from the Enlightenment. The, the Enlightenment, of course, is a, a broad term referring to the growth of, of the ideal of individual liberty and government responsive to people. And this, of course, features many Virginians, many leading Virginians, who, despite the fact that the Revolutionary War started in Boston, you could make an argument that until... The Virginia plan was fully debated in the in the uh, Philadelphia Convention. Virginia was the leading hotbed of political thought and political idealism in America. You could almost argue militarily that it was. This is where our great generals, in many cases, came from. I, I realize there's other people, and certainly Connecticut would say so. But you get the idea here that Virginia has it all. And I keep wanting to say jump, Virginia, because I watched John Carter this week. If you don't get it, watch the movie, you'll understand. But it is Virginia throughout our history that has both led and understood that of all the 13 colonies, of all the 14, 15, 16 states that are being proposed right now, she's the one that really can say, eh, we don't really need the rest of you. 
And if we decline this Constitution, the likelihood is then that New York does as well. Uh, Rhode Island, we already know, is going to. Oddly enough, North Carolina is going to reject it here pretty soon. But if Virginia leads that way, boy, is this going to create unbelievable havoc. And it's going to divide the country because Virginia owns that middle section. And it's these gentlemen, these greats of our history, who we have to understand, as I was talking about at the beginning, we have to understand, these are not gods, they're not even demigods. They're men who are facing the greatest political crisis this country has ever seen, ever, ever. And they have to find a way to not just get through it, not just find the solution, not just find the workable answer, not just force something on people, but find the answer that will benefit not just themselves, not just their state, but the entirety of the future of the United States of America and hold to the very ideals that they have expressed in the past. And the question becomes, can these men and their shadows, Washington, Jefferson, come to that agreement? And can they do it quickly enough to matter? We know that they can. Next, we'll start looking at how they did it. Constitution Thursday is a feature segment on Plausibly Live, the official podcast of The Dave Bowman Show. A Slippery Fish Entertainment production for the Podcast 99 Network. Copyright MMXV. All rights reserved. For more information, log on to ConstitutionThursday.com. Constitution Thursday.